the best piece of advice I've ever gotten that I resisted the most initially, and it came from a yogi, um, was we are told to treat people the way we want to be treated, the golden rule. And instead, and I've heard it called the platinum rule, but um, it's treat people the way they want to be treated. And if you really think about that, it's, it's a lot more difficult than it seems because to go back to our conversation, if you're a healthy person, you know, relatively healthy, good shape, whatever, and you have a family member who's obese, um, and you treat them the way they want to be treated, which is they want to eat what they want to eat when they want to eat it, you know, it's really difficult. Um, but I, I think it's really critical um, because when you treat people the way you want to be treated, you're making the assumption that they want the same things that you do or they have the same values that you do. Um, and that's just not true. I mean, it just doesn't work. Um, so treat people the way they want to be treated. And if you're not sure how they want to be treated, just ask. Welcome to the Modern Longevitarian Podcast. I'm Scott Stanfield, and I have the privilege to interview some of the most successful people in the fields of human performance and longevity. You can listen to the Modern Longevitarian on your favorite platforms. If you like what you hear and listen on the Apple Podcast app, please do me a favor by subscribing and leaving a great review. According to cancer.gov, over 38% of adults will be diagnosed with cancer at some point during their lifetimes. In 2017, an estimated 15,000 children and adolescents ages 0 to 19 were diagnosed with cancer, and almost 1,800 of them died of the disease. This means that if cancer does not hit home, it will likely hit extremely close. Both of my parents are cancer survivors. So I'm speaking from personal experience. In this episode, I have the honor to interview Andrea Wilson-Woods. Andrea is the founder of the nonprofit Blue Fairy and Cancer University. She is also the author of Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days, where she tells a brilliant, touching story about her little sister Adrienne's journey that starts at being diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. With mom out of the picture, Andrea wears many hats, such as legal guardian, parent, sister, friend, and guide. This is a touching story about the reality of life. For me, there are three things that really stick out in this podcast. Number one, don't worry about what other people think. Number two, when cancer hits the fan, get practical and get educated. Number three, Level up from the golden rule to the platinum rule and treat others the way they want to be treated. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrea Wilson-Woods. Today's guest is the founder of the nonprofit Blue Fairy. It's the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. She is also the co-founder of Cancer University and the author of the award-winning best-selling medical memoir, Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Andrea Wilson-Woods, welcome to the Modern Longevitarian Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's such an honor to have you, and I really want to thank you for your time and being here today. And uh, we just scheduled this this week, so this is short notice, and um, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, 
about having you and exploring more about, you know, what led you to this point and also what you're doing today. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, so I, I think we need to lay down a foundation for the listeners and with your story. So um, who are you and what do you do? Um, we, you said it all. You did the whole bio. I'm, I'm good. No, <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I'm a writer. I, I love to tell stories, and um, and clearly I'm in the cancer space, and um, and that goes way back. Um, when I was 22 years old, I was living in Los Angeles. I had graduated from USC, had my degree, and my then eight-year-old sister Adrian came to visit me for Christmas vacation, and. That two-week vacation turned into a permanent stay because our mother didn't want to be a mother anymore. And so I became my sister's only parent um, because her father actually had died in a car accident before she was born, and I became my sister's legal guardian. So I um, raised my sister all through my 20s, and um, it wasn't easy, but it, it was some of the best times of my life. Um, and then one day, um, a month after her 15th birthday, just as she was finishing her uh, first year of high school, she was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. And it was very abrupt. I mean, the day before she'd been fine, very active teenager. And then that day she was in pain. We go to the ER. Um, the doctor says she has tumors in her liver and lungs and were packed up in an ambulance and going to Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And that was day one of my sister's very short 147-day journey with cancer, hence the subtitle of my book. And um, she died a few months after my 29th birthday. I was absolutely devastated. I mean, I had lost my sister. I had lost my child. And... We were getting to that point where she was getting old enough where I was looking forward to being her friend. You know, we were finally getting to that, that, that spot. And um, it changed the whole course of my life. When I was raising my sister, I was an actress. And I was also a teacher to be on my sister's schedule. Um, and the year before, I had been in three plays. I was actually directing theater in Los Angeles and shockingly getting paid for it. Um, and And... By the time I was 30, none of that mattered anymore. So I was looking for a way to channel my grief. And my thought was, well, I'm just going to do some volunteer work. So I called the largest liver disease organization in the U.S., and I won't say who they are because I work with them today, but I called them and realized they didn't have anything about liver cancer on their website and I came to find out later that that was actually an edict within the company, that they didn't want to touch liver cancer. And um, I offered to volunteer for them. And my background is, you know, it's writing and marketing. And, and they said no. And I, despite how persistent I was, they didn't want anything to do with it. And I thought it was really strange. This was late 2002. And even though my sister's cancer was considered rare, she had the most common type of liver cancer. It's extremely common worldwide. And by all indications, it was just going to keep going up, up, up in the U.S. And it has. And it's one of the few cancers still on the rise in the United States, um, which we can g go into those details if you like. And so anyway, um, 
Lily Tomlin has this great quote that goes something like this. She says, um, I realized someone should do something about that, and then I realized that someone was me. And that's what happened. I searched, you know, everywhere. There wasn't a single charity in the U.S. doing anything about um, hepatocellular carcinoma, also known as HCC. And so I started my nonprofit, Blue Fairy. And um, that experience with my nonprofit is actually what led me to Cancer You. And I'm going to stop there because <laughs> you might have some questions. <laughs> Yeah, I might. I might have one or two, right? Yeah. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> um, you know, I want to talk about liver cancer for a second. This is something that's really new to me. I, I, I have experience with my dad had prostate cancer. My mom had uterine cancer. Um, you know, we had some, you know, people that had lung cancer in our family or spots on their lungs from smoking older, older generations. Um, and what I f- find interesting about your what, and I didn't know what you just told me about what the company edict to not have things about liver cancer, but also your sister's or daughter's um, liver cancer was more of an adult cancer, so that even the yeah. children's doctors didn't know what to do. So can you talk a little bit more about about that? Yeah, so she, like I said, she had the most common type of liver cancer, um, and it was an adult cancer. It was not a pediatric cancer. There, There is a pediatric liver cancer that's very rare, um, and the doctors at Children's Hospital Los Angeles just really didn't know how to treat her, and it took me a very long time, but I did transfer her care to UCLA where they saw that cancer every single day. I mean, they have a liver cancer center at UCLA, and um, primary liver cancer where the cancer originates in the liver, is um, one of the most preventable cancers there is. And it's caused primarily by sort of three um, kind of, I call them pockets, if you will. There are environmental causes, which range from anything to being exposed to certain chemicals, to um, a fungus called aflatoxins, which does not occur here, but occurs in parts of Asia. They don't really understand why, but there is definitely a correlation. Um, then there is lifestyle choices, so poor lifestyle choices um, like obesity, alcoholism, can lead to cirrhosis, which can lead to liver cancer, or can lead to non-alcoholic fatty uh, liver disease, which can lead to liver cancer. Um, and then there is um, viruses. So Hepatitis B, um, which is transmitted through bodily fluid, and hepatitis C, which is transmitted through blood, um, can both cause liver cancer. They don't in everyone, but they, they can. Um, and hepatitis B now can be prevented by, through a vaccination. So I highly recommend everyone get vaccinated. And hepatitis C, um, now there are curative drugs on the market for people who have hepatitis C. And with my sister, when... The surgeon saw what he did in her biopsy. He was so stunned. I mean, he came out. My sister was still in recovery, had not woken up yet. And he said, um, we're going to test your sister for hepatitis. And, I mean, I was like, oh, okay. And um, she came back positive for chronic hep C, sorry, chronic hep B and hepatitis C. And, you know, based on my sister's age and the, and the year she was born, and our mother's history of being a drug addict as well as a nurse, um, they determined that my sister 
got both hep B and hep C from our mother during childbirth, and that is not uncommon for that to happen. And when my sister was born in 1986, hep C had not even been identified or taken out of the blood supply. And with hep B, um, they, it was not standard of care to test mothers for hep B. And for my memoir many years ago when I was um, working on it, I actually interviewed my mother's OBGYN, tracked him down, told him what happened. I knew he would remember my mother because she was a nurse and she was an incredibly difficult patient. Um, and he confirmed that it, it wasn't standard of care to test mothers for hepatitis at that time. It just wasn't. Um, and um, it was just kind of a, a perfect storm um, and horrible. And had we known my sister had been exposed, we could have been monitoring her all of those years and keeping an eye on her liver, um, but we had no idea. Um, and our livers don't have pain receptors, which is why liver cancer is often not detected until much, much later and it's advanced disease because what happened with my sister is pretty common. Her liver became so swollen, it was actually pushing on her diaphragm, and that is why she kept saying she couldn't breathe. Um, you know, mm -hmm. she wasn't jaundiced. Her skin wasn't yellow. Um, she was still able to eat. She had had a little bit of acid reflux, but she was a teenager, you know, who ate tacos. <laughs> yeah. I, I, always could, I always said I couldn't control every single thing she ate. I could control what was in our house, but I couldn't control what she ate at school. And, and, um, and I was concerned about it, but I wasn't overly concerned. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just... Uh, was awful. Yeah, I know firsthand. There's a lot of tacos in Southern California. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. there> are. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and she loved carne asada too. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you don't you don't know this about me, but um, I I'm have family in Southern California, but I also worked there. I managed a restaurant there for a time, actually in Santa Monica, right across the street from the pier. And oh. So, you know, wow. Yeah. So that was so one of listening my to favorite places. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful spot. You know, and actually, yeah. um, just just so everybody knows, the cover shot for this um, podcast, the Modern Longevitarian podcast, was me standing across the street um, from the restaurant, looking overlooking the Santa Monica Pier, and I turned around and took a selfie. And, oh, really? Um, oh, I love yeah, it. So, so I was in that park right across the street. Um, yeah. I'm getting chills just thinking about it because I would work uh -huh. all day long and I would go over and check out the sunset. Yeah. Um, and even wrote a, I even wrote a poem to the sunset one time and posted it. I have to, I have to find that. <laughs> but uh, because it was, I was working all day long and I worked 10, 12 hours a day and I, I would take a break and walk across the street with all the people, all the homeless people, all the yeah. tourists. And I would watch the sunset and look at Santa Monica Pier and take pictures. I was there when Kobe passed away and I was, you know, and so all those type of things. And um, so anyway, I'm not trying to get off track and talk about me, but um, there's a lot of tacos and a lot of food and it's in LA is a, a foodie town. And so I, I can get why, why she was, uh, would have those things. And that's a, a, a big thing. Yeah. Um, she really, she really loved LA. Um, I mean, I, I, I know if she were alive today, she would probably still be in LA or at least in California. And I probably never would have left. Right. And, and, and there's a lot of things. At 15, she was an artist. She had things, you know, artwork in galleries and stuff. And she was yeah. she was getting things going. So talk. About, I want to talk about her a little bit, about what <laughs> was going on. And she was also depressed and suicidal up until this happened. And then 
those switch flipped in her. So let's talk about the last hundred, you know, all those different things with her because she's kind of the highlight of the story here and, and yeah. you telling it for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, she was, she's incredibly talented. Um, like everyone in my family, she could not sing at all. I mean, there's something where we are completely, totally tone deaf but <laughs> other than that she was an aspiring musician she was learning how to play um uh, jazz bass um she was um, a writer she was an artist um she had had her artwork hung in three galleries uh, around los angeles um and that was probably her, her her best talent um she had done some acting even though she didn't like it very much and she she had actually been paid for it um and uh, I feel like I'm missing an, an art skill or something, um, gymnastics. I mean, you know, you name it. She was just very, very creative um, and mm-hmm. um, very intelligent. And, but she got into middle school. And I have decided, at least for girls, like middle school or junior high, as it was called when I was a kid, is just like the mm-hmm. worst time. It's just a horrible time. And... She really didn't fit in with anyone. Most of the kids had been in school together since kindergarten because I had moved her to a new school district to Burbank where it was much safer, more stable, um, secure. Prior to that, I had lived in Hollywood, and I just wasn't comfortable with her going to um, middle school or high school in Hollywood. Um, And she became severely depressed, Suicidal. I mean, I, I found the suicide note, and she was serious. I mean, it was, it was really bad. Um, and mm-hmm. we found a therapist who <laughs> is just amazing. And I, I actually saw her for the first time in many, many years. I saw her um, last year when I went to visit L.A. And um, she specialized in teenagers. And, um, and then Adrian started seeing her every single week. And, in fact, that first day when Adrian felt pain that night was a Wednesday and she always went to see, um, I changed her name in the book, but I, I have her permission to say it uh, on podcast, but she went to see Denise every Wednesday night. So that was one of the first phone calls we made from the ER was we called Denise and said, hey, we don't know what's going on, but Adrian's in pain, so she's not going to be coming in tonight. Um, and so she spent, um, she was in therapy from the time she was 12 all, all the way through, um, but uh, it took a long time for her to get through that. And when she got to high school, she started to come into her own, and she stopped worrying about what other people thought. And she just started embracing herself. And so she was getting to that point where she was just starting to really blossom as a young woman. And after that diagnosis with cancer, that just went into overdrive. And she just, she created a bucket list. She didn't call it that. I didn't call it that. Um, I could not acknowledge that's what she was doing, but it was. Um, and she just made this list of, like, everything she'd ever wanted to do. Um, and she was able to do most of the things on her list. Um, you know, one of the very first things was, she found out her favorite musician, Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction, was going to be on The Tonight Show um, a few weeks, uh, like three weeks after her, her diagnosis. Um, and The Tonight Show was filmed at that time in Burbank, right down the street from our mm-hmm. house. And she and her boyfriend just said, well, we're going to get tickets. And I was like, all right, kids, if you get tickets, I'll take you. And um, we ended up getting eight tickets for three people. <laughs> 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 and we met Jay Leno, who is just 
an amazing man, and we met Dave Navarro, um, you know, and, and then there were little things, too, like going to the ballet and sitting in the orchestra and, and um, going to a restaurant we'd always wanted to try, and, and then she had her Make-A-Wish Day where she had a concert um, with Dave Navarro, so she got to see him again, and um, I mean, almost everything she wanted to do, we did. The, the only thing that didn't work out was um, she wanted to go on the Montel Williams show, <laughs> and, and she loved Montel. And, and back then, you know, Montel was, um, was, was uh, very popular, and, but he was really known for uh, scaring teenagers straight. But she wanted to go on Montel to talk to people about her cancer because there was, there's so much ignorance still, unfortunately, about liver cancer. And one of the things that we um, got more than once from her friend's parents, so at this point I was 28, almost 29, and her friend's parents were about 10 years older than I was. And more than mm-hmm. one of them said, oh, my God, I didn't know she was a drinker. She's an honor student. And mm. <laughs> you, you can't even get upset because it's just so absurd. It was like, okay, yeah. how much would a 15-year-old have to drink to get liver cancer this advanced? I mean, really. And so, but, but again, that's part of the big, big, big misunderstanding. Um, you know, the number one cause of liver cancer in this country is not alcoholism. It is hepatitis C, although that is actually changing and it's becoming what they call NASH, um, which is part of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is due to obesity. So again, it comes back to what I know you talk a lot about on this podcast. It comes back to lifestyle choices. Yep. It comes to environmental toxins, lifestyle choices, and the the pillars, what I call the seven pillars of being a longevitarian, which are things that influence our genetic expression. Yeah. And, um, and, and you, you know, that's why I wanted to have you on the show is, A, your story is just amazing and people can learn so much from it. But also, this is something that's a new territory for me. And I wanted to learn from you, really. And, um, and that's, that's the, whole, the whole piece of it. So this is, there's so much packed into the story and all of those things. I mean, um, I, mean I obviously have been in L.A. and I, I know the creativity of the town and the people and the conversations and, you know, all of those things. And I can see how those things can happen. And, you know, it's such a blessing that you, you found the, the suicide note and all of those yeah. things to, to get to that point so she can blossom. There's a quote, I think it's um, Zin Shi says, a flower blooms without worrying about the flower next to it. And, oh, I love that. Yeah, it's so beautiful because what you explained is, is that she was worried about all the flowers next to her in middle school, junior high, right? And yeah. then, um, and then all of a sudden, when she said, "I'm just going to bloom," she became her own person. Yeah. And um, which is a beautiful piece of the puzzle. You know, I, one of the questions that I ask in interview, and I take interviewing people when when I manage restaurants or hotels or hospitals when I was a director of food and beverage there, um, I take it very seriously because I think selecting the right people is extremely important. And one of the, my, like the foundational question is if you went to see a doctor and the doctor said you had six months to live, what would you do with the remaining time? Yeah. And, and I, you know, to be honest with you, I hadn't thought about that 
um, and this wasn't pre-planned for this this interview. Um, and I remember um, really close friend of mine, a chef, and we didn't actually meet working in restaurants. We lived in the same town. We went to the same church. We would cook men's breakfast together. We were just kind of put together because there was a kitchen and there was food and there were men and we did that. We became really close friends over the last year and a half of his life and he passed away from brain cancer. And my first blog that I ever had was called Straight Cabbage, um, which (laughs) that's one of my email addresses. But um, I wrote about, because I was asking this question in interviews, I'm like, and I get so many different questions about like, um, you know, answers. The number one is skydiving and travel. That's the first two questions out of, that's over 10 years of asking that question to every applicant. So thousands of people, I would either go skydiving or travel. Um, the third question or answer, which was the most important and the one I was really looking for is I would, it was an unselfish answer, which is I would spend time with family or I would spend time with the people I love, or I would reconcile with this difference with this, or I would move back home because a lot of times I live in resort towns, Park City, Utah, and, you know, Southern California, you know, Hilton Head Island, and, and I, they, I would move back home, right, to be with my right. family. And and when when uh, Chef um, Mike passed away from brain cancer, I wrote this really long thing that said, why don't we live that life now, mm-hmm. really? And yeah. I think that's what, I think that's what in her, in Adrian's, you know, um, last 147 days, she did that. Right. That's exactly what she did. Yeah, she did. She did. She decided to do everything she had had wanted to do. And and we did our best to do it. You know, it was it was predictable, got to be predictable in terms of knowing when her immune system was was healthy and when it wasn't. And and so um, and yeah, we did we we did everything we possibly possibly could. Hmm. So what motivated you to write the book? Well, I always knew I was going to write a story about me and Adrienne. Um, I mean, gosh, when she was like 10 years old, like I knew I wanted to write that story because our, our bond was just so strong. And I mean, I was the first person to hold Adrienne after she was born because my mother had a cesarean and, and my mother, because she was, like I said, a nurse, she had the pool and I got to be like right there. Like, um, and um, I was so involved um, from day from day one and the hardest part about leaving Birmingham, Alabama, where my sister was born, and was not leaving my mother or leaving Birmingham. It was leaving Adrian, you know, um, to go to college, and it was really difficult. Um, but I knew it was something that I needed to do. Um, so I, I really wanted people to know our story. But obviously I never thought that was going to be the story I was going to write. And then one of the best things I did, and I always tell writers this when they ask for advice um i wasn't sure if i was going to be able to write this story but since i knew i wanted to write about us um less than a year after adrian died i asked everyone for interviews i had a very close-knit group of friends at that time and uh, most of whom are in the book and anyone who would give me an interview i did it um not knowing if i was ever going to be able to write it wanting to be able to write it um, but at least their memories were incredibly fresh at that time. And um, and I'm so glad I did that because, I, I mean, I didn't even get to writing the first draft for a few more years. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just I want people to know who she is, you know. I want people to know mm-hmm. who she is and to remember her 
and for her to have a legacy and um, I, I you know I believe she inspires people um, I don't think most adults would handle her diagnosis as well as she did and she was 15 and you know I, I say uh, in sort of the the um, epilogue of the book that there were moments of definitely sadness and anger and frustration and fear, but I never once saw Adrienne pity herself, not one time, when the entire time in my head I was going, why her, why her, why her, why her? Um, and I didn't see that in her. And, yeah, I just I want people to know my sister. Mm. I think the most interesting thing about this is that you write about these devastating and tragic events that have marked your life, but you write them with humor. Good. How do you do that? Yeah, how do you do that? Well, joy is one of my core values, so I think that helps. And um, and I definitely raised Adrian that way. I mean, when she was being wheeled in for that very first CAT scan when we had no idea what was going on. It was just me and her um, at that point, which was great. And she said, uh, hey, Sissy, why'd you be cancer? And I was like, oh, bite your tongue. And I started laughing and laughing. And and she did that just to make me laugh. She did stuff like that all the time to make me laugh. And, um, and, and that was, you know, that was just our, our sense of humor. Um, in a league of their own, that you know, that movie starring Tom Hanks about uh, women playing baseball, you know, he says there's no crying in baseball, and that was something that, like, we said to each other, there's no crying during homework, you know, and and then <laughs> when no one else was around, we still said it to each other, there's no crying during chemo, you know, um, and so I raised her to be really tough, but to also have a sense of humor. I mean, because, man, if you can't laugh, if you can't find some humor, I mean, the world is not always a great place. I mean, and and so I think it's really essential to find the humor. And those are some of my um, favorite reviews or just emails or feedback that I get, the people who are able to find the humor and, and laugh as well as cry when they read the book. It's so important. It really is. I've been doing, you know, some digging in on, you know, Michael Singer's work with the Untethered Soul. Oh, and, wonderful yeah. book. Oh, my goodness. Love that book. Yeah. Love it. It's, a, it's amazing. And, you know, I think that what you're really touching on here is the joy, right? What you talked about, joy, happiness, laughter, um, no matter what the outside circumstances are, is really having an untethered soul. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, and you, you may have touched on this and, and I just, and I want to one more question about the book and then we'll switch gears into talking about what you're doing now. Um, but um, what do you really hope that the readers will take away from better off balls? I, I hope that, um, I hope they're inspired. Um, and I hope that they understand what it's really like, a cancer diagnosis. I mean, I made a very conscious decision early on um, to include all the details. And 
uh, some of the criticism of the book has been that it's too detailed. But that was that was a choice I made because um, I love memoir. It's one of my favorite genres to read. But a lot of other illness, I'm using air quotes that you can't see, but a lot of illness <laughs> memoirs that I've read um, leave out all the details and leave out like, you know, leave out sort of the bad stuff and, or really gloss over it. And, um, and that frustrates me. And it was really important to me that to include the details. And, and I was able to do that because I kept a medical journal um, while Adrian was going through cancer. And then I mentioned before she was a writer and she had actually started a journal I mean, she'd always had journals from the time she was a little kid, but she started an online journal before she ever got sick, and she kept it going while she was sick. And I was never allowed to read it, and so I didn't even read that journal until um, over a year after she had died. And so the book is written like a journal, where days are actually chapters, and starting at day three, um, every chapter begins with her point of view. And and that was really important for me, too. It's like you get the point of view of the patient and you get the point of view of the caregiver, which at one moment in the book are so radically different where she knows she's getting worse and I think she's getting better. And um, and I really like the feedback I've gotten from that because I think people do appreciate it. Um, yeah, I want people to understand, you know. It's, it's not yeah. pretty. It's, it's not fun. It's not um, – I won't, I won't call this person out, but there's someone that talks about, you know, sexy, fun, cancer, whatever. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not. But so many people are affected by it. They are. And I, and I think that it's rare that we get that perspective from – you know, a patient that was so open and, you know, um, and then also the caregiver, right? And, and in one location, you know, I mean, you mentioned earlier that the parents of her friends are about 10 years older than you. And I've, I've thought about this a lot because I've listened to at least three podcasts that you've been on as guests and, and doing research for this. And I was thinking about how young you were going through all of this and, how strong you had to have been and resilient. And um, so what did, you know, speaking to other caregivers out there, what kind of advice can you give about recharging batteries or who took care of you or, you know, how do, how do you, how do you live that life with not having any experience of going through that stuff before? Oh God, this is a hard question. Um, well, behind my back, and I didn't find this out for, for like 10 years, um, behind my back people called me The Rock, and I had no idea mm. that they were calling me that. Um, I am the person you want. Um, I'm trying not to curse on your podcast. <laughs> I, I'm the person you want. Like if the world's coming to an end, I'm the person you want because I just I get calm and still, and I... Um, I do what needs to to be done. I mean, I, I remember I had a friend, um, this was long after Adrian died, but it's been many years now, and she had found out that her husband had been cheating on her for, for a very long time, almost a year, and she drove from Reno to Los Angeles and um, and came to me and just like, you know, just falling apart at the door kind of thing, and, and they had a very young child, and, and she said, what do I do now? And... 
and she told me like that weekend she chose me because her other friends um her other friends just started bad mouthing him and i didn't do that i said you know let's get your finances in order um let's let's go to the bank uh, and which we did um you know let's talk about you know where you are now and and do you want to save this marriage um and let's, of course, talk about her child, too. And, and she told me, she said that's why she came to me, because I just get very practical. And it doesn't mean I wasn't dying on the inside. Um, I was. Um, but on the outside, I, I had to be strong for Adrian, and I had to be. I had to be. And I think part of that just might be innate, but also part of it is being the oldest child and being raised by a mother who is addicted to prescription drugs from the time I was about eight years old. And so I learned how to take care of my mother. And I didn't even realize it. I mean, I didn't even know what, you know, enabler was or, you know, I didn't, codependency. I had no idea what those terms were until much, much uh, later in life. But, um, but I'm very good at taking care of people and taking care of problems and, it's, you know, so I think it's innate and it's learned behavior. So unfortunately, I don't have the best advice for caregivers, except that you do need support and you can't get it from the patient. You know, you have to go to another source. Um, um, but, uh, but you do need support. And I don't think there's enough support for caregivers out there. Right. I don't think there is either. But I, I think that your best advice is just get practical. Yeah. You know, don't take it personally. Just get practical. I think that that was what that was right, right in the middle of what you were saying. And I think that's extremely important. Yeah. So just edit it to that point. (laughs) (laughs) Just edit it down. (laughs) Just spill it down to that. Um, Well, and, and, and you can only control certain things. So focus on what you can control. And, you know, I couldn't control the cancer. I sure wanted to, but I couldn't. But I could control, right. you know, how much pain Adrian was in. I could do something when she was in pain. I could, you know, I, I could control, you know, trying to get her to a better hospital with doctors who had more experience. I mean, I was on the phone with the insurance company every day for weeks, but I did it. So you really have to also just focus on what you can control. That's great advice. And any situation, you know, yeah. it re- really is. Um, so switching gears, as I said, um, you know, we we can talk about one of two things. Uh, Blue Fairy, I think, is probably a great place to transition to, and then we can move into Cancer University. So t- tell us about Blue Fairy, what the goals are with that, and what's going on. Yeah, so um, Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma through research, education, advocacy. And um, we're a 100% volunteer organization, and for about 10 years we operate under the radar until liver cancer just really exploded in this country. And, um, and we've really grown exponentially in the last five years or so. Um, and the website is bluefairy.org, so B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y. 
Um, and if you want to find out why we're called Blue Fairy, it's all there. <laughs> um, right. And uh, hint, my sister's favorite color was blue, but there's more to it than that. Um, yeah. And um, I heard the story. <laughs> you did? Oh, okay, awesome. And yes. uh, yeah. yeah, so we, we focused first on education because when – when Adrian was diagnosed, I was given all these one-pagers on chemo and nothing about her cancer. And um, the doctor made copies from his medical textbooks, and I had these pages, and I felt like an idiot. I really did. I was like, how is it that I have a college education and I don't understand any of this material? And I went out and got um, a medical dictionary that I still have that's about two inches thick, and I bought Gray's Anatomy, and I was translating all of this medical terminology, and I think that stuck in my head, even though, of course, at that time it never occurred to me I would ever start a charity, but it stuck in my head, like, how is it that there are no patient-friendly materials for patients and caregivers written in layman's terms? I mean, the average reading level for Americans is seventh grade, and and yet most of this stuff is written at a college level. So... um, so that's where we started, and our patient education materials are absolutely free um, to patients, families, even providers. Um, we don't need a purchase order. If we're shipping to a hospital, it's fine. We just need a valid address, and um, we've shipped all over the U.S., um, several different countries, um, and they're available in English, Spanish, and Chinese. We have an annual research award that we give out on my sister's birthday on April 8th. Um, in the last two years, they've actually been international recipients. And, um, and we also have an advocacy component that shows up in different ways. Um, prior to this year, we were doing a, quite a bit of advocacy um, with other organizations, um, you know, going, going to D.C. And, and trying to affect legislation. Um, but that's not always productive, and of course now you really can't even go anywhere. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, yeah, but um, but we, we do a lot of things. We also have a um, an award called the Adrian Wilson Spirit Award that we give to um, someone who's currently diagnosed with liver cancer, but who has some way given back to their community. Um, and it's a rolling award, so as long as we have the funds, we give it out. We do have to confirm the person's diagnosis, um, and they can use the money however they like. It's a cash award, and um, and we just actually uh, gave out one, uh, I think, in the last two months, and um, just received the loveliest letter from the, the wife and um you know, just a couple really struggling with, with the diagnosis, and, and they understand that, you know, this will most likely kill him, um, that he's getting palliative care, not, you know, not curative treatment. Um, and that's one of the, the tough things is that um, because it's diagnosed so late, there are a lot of drugs now on the market that never existed when my sister was diagnosed for advanced stage liver cancer, but all of those drugs are palliative care you know, they are not meant to cure the patient of the cancer. And it's really difficult when I'm talking to patients and caregivers on the phone and they assume because their doctor gave them something, well, that that's going toward a cure when that could not even be, I mean, further from the case. I mean, your best shot at a cure for liver cancer is either a transplant or surgery where they actually can cut out all of the tumor. Um, yeah, so it's uh, mm. it can be tough, but um, there's such yeah. a level of overwhelm that happens when you know we talked about this before we got mm-hmm. a, you know started the official interview. 
and you know, which I've seen with my parents. We have a really close friend that just, um, you know, was diagnosed with cancer just weeks ago, and you see them basically just throw up their hands and say, "I'm going to do whatever the doctor tells me," and you think they're doing the best in what's in their best interest, and are, are the patient's best interest, but they may be just trying to um, just ease the pain, so to speak. Yeah. And um, because they're, they're, they, they get graded on that stuff. And with Obamacare that came through, and I don't know if you know this or not, I was working at the hospital when this happened, you know, Medicaid reimbursement was now attached to patient satisfaction scores. Yeah, patient report outcomes. Yep, and if your satisfaction score was lower than the national average, you didn't get your reimbursement, which is millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So basically they just want to make people feel good and mm-hmm. make their pain, manage their pain, not heal them. And, yeah. and um, so they would get their satisfaction scores up so they then would uh, get reimbursed for the Medicaid because it's all about the bottom line, really, in that, that industry. Yeah. Um, I, really, I really love everything you're doing with that. And we didn't talk much about the prevention, which is my – you know, my area that I work in all the time, but I love that that's something that you're doing as well. But I think the biggest piece of the puzzle is that if somebody does get cancer, you know, they need a resource that is written in a way that they can understand it and know which way to go. And, and, and this is absolutely amazing. But now you've expanded that with Cancer University. So talk about what Cancer University is and how that can help people and what, and we can even get into what your like lifelong mission, mission is with that. Yeah, so Cancer University came out of a problem that I saw with my own nonprofit. Um, I knew that we were giving people the best possible information on liver cancer, but I was finding that I was having to coach people on how to use the information. It was kind of like, well, what do I do next? Um, kind of the ver- you know, kind of like give a, someone a fish versus teaching them how to fish. And my my background is teaching, um, but also I'm a certified coach. And after Adrian died, I went back to school and got my master's in writing. And then I became an adjunct professor, and I actually taught for an online university. So that's my wheelhouse, like, you know, teaching, coaching, content creation. Um, I love that stuff. And um, I started actually um, being recruited um, on LinkedIn to be a cancer coach for these other companies. And I, I understood, you know, I, I understand why people were reaching out to me, but I personally never wanted to charge people during the most difficult time in their lives for my services. And I couldn't do it because I've been there and I know what that's like. And, and I know what it's like to only have $20 in my checking account and no money to put in my car for gas. I mean, my, my sister and I had some very, very tough years before the cancer. And so I didn't want to be a coach in that respect, but I knew there was a need, no question. So it was a kind of thing I was mulling around for for a long time, and I prayed on it, I meditated on it, and I just kept thinking about that that moment, you know, 48 hours after we find out she has tumors, and I have to make a decision about her care, and my head was spinning, and I was overwhelmed, and I called the alphabet suit of, suit of um, sorry, alphabet soup of cancer, and it's like, oh my gosh, you have to go back to school because you're just starting over, and and I just said, oh my, it's cancer university. That is what it is. Mm-hmm. And it just hit me. And I entered an entrepreneurial competition um, sponsored by the pharmaceutical company Estellas. 
And at that point, I just had this idea, and I thought this is a good way to see you know, if it has any merit whatsoever. I threw together a web page. And, um, and I, that year, out of over 160 entries from 21 countries, I got in the top 10. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I think I might be on to something here. And so I then spent another six months vetting the idea with patients and caregivers and survivors and providers and, and you know, pharmaceutical and people and just everyone I, I know and all the relationships I've made over the last 15-plus years. And every single person came back and said, yes, this is needed. This is, this is absolutely needed because it's not just, you know, giving a course, there's, there's a coaching and teaching and training component. Um, and so Cancer Use, an online membership platform, it's for cancer patients and caregivers, it's to educate them and empower them and to engage them to become advocates for their cancer care, to improve outcomes for the patients, but to also lower cost. And so while the end users of the platform are the patients and caregivers, our customers are actually providers and payers and uh, private employer health plans and pharmaceutical companies. And um, we had a pilot that was scheduled to launch in March. Um, and depending on when you're listening to this, you will know what happened in March of 2020 in the world. So, <laughs> right, um, so, so COVID uh, really affected the launch of our pilot, but it seems like now at the time of this recording, um, almost August, we are back on track with a pilot with a major NCI center, um, possibly two. And, um, and we're moving forward. And we'd already, we've already had a beta test that got us to this pilot. So um, it's been, um, it's been wonderful. It really has. And, um, and just to get the, the feedback that we've gotten, and we have a great medical advisory board, and we also have a patient caregiver advocate board, so we're always getting that feedback from them as well. Um, and I'm really excited. I mean, my, my goal is to really create a powerful, sustained movement that changes cancer care in this country. Um, it, it has to change, because what's going on now is not working. Right. It's... It's definitely not working, and, and I think there's so much focus, you know, looking how to manage it once people get it that we've lost sight that is actually preventable. You were telling me you were talking with a doctor just um, earlier. I don't know exactly when it was about, and he was, you know, beating on the drum about how yeah. almost all cancers are, are preventable, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. And it's- go ahead. Yeah, oh, uh, well, I, I mean, I know this is really important to you, and I, I think it's really tough because, um, you know, let's say with liver cancer, so it's something that we've talked about. It's like how do we focus on prevention when, you know, we've kind of gotten, we've gotten through this sort of hepatitis C, you know, issue in the U.S. It's starting to, we're, you know, getting through it with all the curative drugs. And, and like I said, now the biggest cause of primary liver cancer in the U.S. is becoming um, NASH, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but all that really means is obesity. It really just means, mm-hmm. you know, your liver, our livers, were never meant to work this hard. They cannot take it. Um, and the liver is this extraordinary organ, right? It's the only inter- internal organ that can regenerate itself, um, its own tissue, but we can't live without it. You know, you can you can lose a kidney and um, I don't have a gallbladder or an appendix. You, know? <laughs> you can lose a big chunk of your stomach, but yet we all need our liver. And, um, but we were never meant to be 
um, this obese society that we're becoming. And, you know, I, I've said many times to, you know, friends and doctors, you know, you can't legislate behavior. And then COVID happened and it turned out, well, you can legislate behavior. It turns out you can. Yes. And and so, um, yeah, I would love your thoughts on this because I don't know what we do as a country because it, to me it seems like the final frontier. Like you cannot call someone out for being overweight or obese, let's say. Forget just overweight, obese. You can't do that because we need food to survive. So what do we do? Well, there's a couple of things, right, with this. The first thing I do with my coaching clients is have them do a self-waist-to-hip ratio uh, to show where they are in terms of their their weight, right? So I, I love swinging heavy kettlebells and lifting weights and all those type of things. So I've got a little bit more muscle than I would be um, if I didn't do those things, right? Right. And, and so B, BMI doesn't work for me. I'm oh, good point. 24 okay. to 24 to 26 on my BMI because I, and I'm, you know, I don't know, 15% body fat. Right. But yet my BMI shows that I'm overweight. So that doesn't work. Throw that out. Also that takes the scale. It throws the scale out of the way because I can't step on a scale and I haven't for years because that doesn't work either. so So the thing that really, because I muscle weighs more than fat, right? So that doesn't work either. Um, so there's two really ways to test, really, that I think are, are valid, and, and they work really well together. Body fat percentage using, you know, I, I use calipers and put it into an online um, calculator and, and do that. Um, and then also this waist-to-hip ratio longevity self-test. There's one other test I do, which is about flexibility and mobility and strength, which is basically uh, you, you standing and you sit and then stand back up again. And every time you use a hand, an elbow, a knee to get back up you sub, or to get down, you, sub, you subtract points, and the lower huh. score you have, the lower your, um, your longevity is, your lifespan is. And, um, and so I actually incorporate some of those things in my workout and getting you know, mobility and getting up off the floor without using any other help that way, right? Anyway... Um, and, and so what happens is, right, and I've actually said this quote uh, recently, um, which is you don't see um, old fat people. <laughs> it's because um, people who are getting older and then even in the blue zones, they, 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 they do several things. There's calorie restriction. They don't yeah. eat to their um, full. They, um, you know, and especially Okinawa, Japan, they have this thing where they eat to where they're 80% full. They move all day long. Um, and so I do think that that is the key to this in obesity is that, so how do we do that? How do we stop obesity? I think one of the things, the ideas I came up with, um, eight years ago when I was working in the hospital was, um, and they kind of do this now They you can go to health IQ and get a lower, um, term life insurance, lower price premium term life insurance. If you are vegan or run a seven minute mile or eat low carb or any of these type of things. Um, you know, but what if, if somebody had a certain waist to hip ratio or certain BMI or some, something and their health insurance was double the price, right? So what if that yeah. was included in Obamacare where it's like, okay, you're going to get penalized, taxed, if you will, for being overweight. 
and more if you're obese. And so well, people do most get people penalized do. for for conditions that are caused right. by those things, right? <laughs> yes, they are, but not until later. And those things don't come up until later in life, though. True. Right? Yeah. yeah. For most people, right? My right, parents are yeah. fifty. But what what happens is if somebody's twenty seven and they're a hundred pounds overweight. And because Obamacare, we're forced to have health insurance, and now it costs me double, or it's a hit on my taxes. Instead of getting a tax refund, I now have to pay taxes because I'm 100 pounds overweight, right? right. You, now you're dealing with emotional eating, stressed eating. Um, now you're like, now it could be diet coaching based off that. I think, you know, there's so many different things. We're so, there's no guardrails in, in our world, in our society about what we should be eating and how much or what we should be eating because you can eat 10,000 calories a day and never get out of your car, right? Yeah. You literally don't have to expend hardly any calories other than just breathing and staying awake to get calories in, and they're not nutrient-dense, healthy calories. And, and, and so I think that that's, we, we as, a, as a culture need to, you know, instead of it being like paleo or keto or intermittent fasting or just a healthy old school low fat diet right we need to have some guardrails that are installed to keep us from eating all the time and eating too many of the wrong things it's backwards yeah. right because all the all the foods that people who can't afford them can get are not good for you where it used to be the peasants were the healthy ones because they were eating stuff that they grew in their garden and and the rich people were getting gout, the king's disease, and those type of things. Right. They were eating the more expensive things, the meats. And now it's flipped yeah. the other way, where organic fill in the blank costs more than I don't know a little Debbie Swiss roll, right? So yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. Exactly. I agree. And so what I've had to tell myself is, real food is what is is like you know if I need to buy, I don't know, organic strawberries because my daughter wants to have strawberries that's what it costs to buy a toxin-free as close as i can get to toxin-free nothing with glyphosate or roundup in it or any of those type of things um uh and, and and it's what it costs versus getting the cheaper strawberry that would have something sprayed on it and i'm, and I'm picking strawberries because they're normally um at the top of the uh, dirty dozen which are the the dirtiest foods that you can buy that are, that are non-organic where Though if we want to make guacamole or have avocados, there's basically no difference between an avocado, whether it's organic or not, and they're on the clean 15 list. And so hmm. looking at the you know, ways that way are, are, are it. And um, I know we're, we're, we're a little bit over our time, but I, I just want to ask you two more things. And before I ask my last question, where can people find you online? Oh, um, the best place to start is, um, well, uh, Blue Fairies, bluefairy.org, so B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y.org, uh, to learn more about the book, betteroffbald.com. And um, for your listeners, if they are a newly diagnosed cancer patient or the caregiver of a newly diagnosed cancer patient, um, they can go to cancer.university and get a free lifetime membership. So they would just click um, apply now fill out the application, and when they get to the bottom where it says, I have a coupon code, um, they would put in the coupon code, uh, Modern Longevitarian. Am I saying it right? <laughs> you, you <laughs> the are. Title, the, the are, title yeah. of your uh, podcast, um, but all one word, all caps, all one word. 
um, and um, they will get a free lifetime membership. And you can find mm. all my social media on any of those websites. Mm. That's so kind. I really appreciate it. That that means so much. And I'll put all of that stuff in the show notes so people can just click on it and then copy and paste the uh, coupon code in. Uh, right. To, to there. I'm, I'm so grateful for that, and I, I know it can be helpful to so many people. So my last question, and I ask this to every guest, and mm-hmm. that is, if you could give one piece of advice on how someone can increase their health span, a.k.a. I referred to this as the prime years of their life, what would your advice be? Ooh, um, gosh, I listened to a bunch of your episodes, and I missed this somehow. Um So this may not sound like it's specific to health, but I feel like it it can be. Um, The best piece of advice I've ever gotten that I resisted the most initially, and it came from a yogi, um, was we are told to treat people the way we want to be treated, the golden rule. And instead, and I've heard it called the platinum rule, but um, it's treat people the way they want to be treated. And if you really think about that, it's, it's a lot more difficult than it seems because to go back to our conversation, if you're a healthy person, you know, relatively healthy, good shape, whatever, and you have a family member who's obese, um, and you treat them the way they want to be treated, which is they want to eat what they want to eat, when they want to eat it, you know, it's really difficult. Um, but I, I think it's really critical um, because when you treat people the way you want to be treated, you're making the assumption that they want the same things that you do or they have the same values that you do. Um, and that's just not true. I mean, it just doesn't work. Um, so treat people the way they want to be treated. And if you're not sure mm-hmm. how they want to be treated, just ask. Wow. We get so caught up in ourselves and our own love language and our own emotional peace and take things mm-hmm. personally that we don't uh, put us our, ourselves in a place of empathy, place of understanding um, that, um, wow, that was just amazing. I, I'm like, it's that was beautiful what you said there. Um, oh, thank you. I, um, yeah, it's, you know, there's such a there's such a connection to people and communities, and, and I reference the blue zones a lot because there's a lot of studies there, and they do a lot better in blue zones having having the community and connection with family, and then than we do here in America. And I think what's that's a blue a zone? I don't know what a blue zone is. Oh, a blue zone. Um, yeah, is educate the, me. The, okay, there's five original blue zones in the world. There okay. are areas that have the highest population per capita of people over 100 years old. They call them centenarians. Okay, okay. And, and um, there was a book, and it was, I think it was sponsored by National Geographic, uh, Dan uh, Butner um, wrote this. And um, so the original areas are Okinawa, Japan, which um, now Japan has the oldest population in the world now. Um, so there, there even is a, there's more even in there. Um, Costa Rica, there's a, an island in Greece, um, I think it's Sardinia, Italy, 
in uh, then only one place in America, which is uh, Loma Linda, California. And what? That's home You're kidding to, me. Yep. Nope. Well, Loma and, Linda? Um, well, that's the home to the Seventh-day Adventist um, church. And Seventh-day oh, Adventists are ve- they're vegetarians, and they fast one day a week. And um, they're really big about their community, too. So um, one of the common things is, um, in addition to community and movement, is um, lower protein, um, animal-based protein um, for longevity. And so that's what, um, you know, you know, what is really kind of the gold standard when you look at uh, increasing life and, and those things. Like, for instance, I took a, a course on the Mediterranean diet, and the Mediterranean diet is obviously responsible for the Greek and Italian portion of the blue zone. And, you know, 80 years ago, very similar situation. We talked about the pet referencing the, the, the peasants or eating the vegetables and things like that. Um, the, the people in that part of the world ate red meat eight times a year and that was at celebrations and weddings and those type of things so think about it if you tell an american they have to eat meat eight times a year right we what we see in the bookstores today about the mediterranean diet is an american diet with mediterranean ingredients and we Mm -hmm. overindulge in that we have pizza we have pasta we have all these other things we don't eat bulk of our meal is being vegetables uh, and only having red meats eight times a year. That's less, that's more than, I mean, you go more than a month without having red meat. And in the original diet that produced people who lived to be over a hundred years old, where an American may have it eight times in a week, right? It's like two different, different things. Average American has two burgers a week. I mean, so that's, A hundred, that's 110 or or over 100 burgers a year for the average American. Average American goes to McDonald's two and a half times uh, a week. I go zero. That means. No. Yes. Yep. I mean, this is it, though. Let me tell you. I was director, I've referenced this hospital job a couple times here because I think it's important here, but I go zero to McDonald's. I've been in McDonald's in years, over a decade, right? And, um, but one of the people who worked in, for us in the kitchen, she went every day she worked five days a week. She went through the drive-thru and got a coffee and an egg McMuffin and hash browns five times a week. I went zero. She went five. That was the two and a half. So I've seen it in real life, how, how it works. Okay. And, you're going to love this. Um, there was a McDonald's okay. in Children's Hospital, Los Angeles <sighs> on the ground floor. Like, it was one of the first things I noticed. I, I was like, wow, there's a McDonald's here? <laughs> yeah. I, well, like I said, it's not a place of healing, you know? Yeah. Um, it, like, for instance, you know, I, you know I, I was in charge of, you know, controlling all the diets and patient in-room dining and, um, you know, and the cafeteria, the doctor's lounge, you know. And in the doctor's lounge, we're putting, like, uh, pasture-raised uh, prosciutto and a little bit of dark chocolate for the surgeons to have as a little mid-afternoon snack, you know, those type of things. You know, in the cafeteria downstairs, people are coming in, family, you know, somebody's having a quadruple bypass, and the family comes in, and, and they order double bacon cheeseburgers with french fries for their 
meal, right? And then patients that may be on a cardiac diet, and I just posted this on Facebook, uh, Dr. Mindy Pels, which is one of the podcasts I sent, links I sent you, um, uh, she was asking about, you know, hospitals and stuff. Um, cardiac patients, they can't have cholesterol, so they don't let them have butter and dairy and those type of things, but they were feeding them, and this is eight years ago, margarine, okay, with trans Oh, God, and which pure, is worse. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, which is worse. And Much so worse. I got that change. But what happened was I, I got this um, earth balance margarine, which doesn't have hydrogenated trans fats in it. And I ordered, started ordering from the specialty company, and I started getting Justin's peanut butter, which is peanuts in salt, right? Yeah. It's not no hydrogenated oils added to it. And we had to, I had to like send studies into the people that I worked for to prove to them that this caused cancer so we could get approval to change that. But food costs went up as I was making these small changes. And it's really, really, I, so I understand why there's a McDonald's in the ground floor of the Children's Hospital in L.A. I get it because they're giving people, that's their clientele. That's what they eat. Right, right? that's what they they're, want. They're not, they're not putting a whole food salad bar in there and having to pay $12 for a salad. They're, right. they're not, that, that's not, there would be complaints over and over and over and over again. And, yeah. um, and so it's really, really just, a, it's just, everything's upside down, right? We're, we're spending all this money on trying to find a cure when we could put, put all that money in educating people and, and where do we need to start really in educating, going back to answering your question, we need to start with the kids, really, because yeah. we build habits. Our brains act, are in theta for the first six to seven years of our life. And then basically after seven, our brains just play back what we filmed, what our brains filmed in the first six years of our life. And so if we can get to people and teach them how to eat the right way as they were kids, yeah. they would do the right thing naturally as adults versus opposite of what they should be doing. And I think that's probably, instead of penalizing the taxes or increased premiums on insurance, I think probably if we could get to the kids, it would it would change the world, really. Yeah, you're right. That might be the only way to do it. I agree. Yeah, it's it's really yeah. hard. You can't make someone change their behavior if they don't want to. It's really difficult. No, you know, and um, I, I was listening. You talked about. I know we're way over time now. And I'm yeah. really sorry. But the podcast I listened to this morning during my workout, you talked about change and how if you want to grow as a person, you have to change. Yep. And. You do. Yeah, and you think about, I grew up in South Carolina. You grew up in Alabama, right? What is, I, what is the southern version of the standard American diet, and how worse is that than what other people are eating around the world? It's pretty bad. And I grew up in South Carolina. I spent my first 30 years in South Carolina eating that diet, and at age 30, I was 40 pounds overweight, and my parents both got cancer in their 50s. Uh. So. Yeah. Four and a half years ago when I switched over to keto, I had already slayed all the dragons of 10 years of being a vegetarian, pescatarian. I was vegan for six months. So I already retooled how to eat. So switching over to keto wasn't so hard for me. Um, I had slayed those dragons early on because uh, I didn't know what to eat. So I was like, well, a tuna sandwich on rye sounds pretty good, right? But I didn't realize that the, <laughs> I didn't realize that the pickles had food coloring and they were made from petroleum products and that the butter was not grass fed and it had hormones in it and all those things. And then the bread had a dough conditioner bromide in it. And then all the dangers, you know, this was 15, 16 years ago of how 
tuna was caught and all of those things and the mercury that I was getting from eating all the fish. So now I've got heavy metal, de- you know, and I've got a detox of bromide somehow. And I've got food coloring in me that's made up of petroleum products and all the toxins that I'm taking in, I think I'm eating healthier. I still struggled up until I ate clean food and then allowed my body to clean itself through intermittent fasting, which is something I've been doing for eight and a half years. And that's really those, those pieces of the, of the puzzle. And I think if people started skipping a meal and allowed the body to clean itself up because our bodies are designed to heal itself naturally, a large portion of the cancer problems that we have would go away just with that without changing what people eat. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest piece of the puzzle. So I have to tell you this. You can keep it or not on the podcast, but you'll appreciate it. So having grown up in the South, and um, and my mother did, did cook for a period of time, you know, growing up with Southern food, I did not realize, though, that unless, unless you're Cajun, Southern food is fairly bland because it's just butter and salt, like that's enlarged. That's pretty much it. And so yeah. when I first moved to Southern California, I mean, I thought the mildest salsa was spicy. I mean, I had no <laughs> palate whatsoever. If it wasn't sweet or fat, buttery tasting or salty, like I didn't know what it was. And so it took me years to adjust, like my, my palate to adjust and everything. And to, like I didn't like Mexican food for years. I didn't like, I wouldn't experiment. I wouldn't try things. And I, God, I had to be in my 30s the first time I tried Indian food. And I actually love Indian food. And, um, and then I moved back here five years ago, and I'm just like, oh, gosh, you do not want to get Chinese food in Birmingham. No way. Like, no way. <laughs> you know, now, so when I do visit L.A., it's like, okay, where are those restaurants I really love and I can't get that food in Birmingham? I'm going to – because there are some great restaurants in Birmingham. Not that we can go to them right now. But, you know, but it's like it's really strange how southern food at its core in many ways is kind of bland. So. It is, right? I mean, we yeah. take black tea and sweeten it to death. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah, right. Saccharin. Um, My so, aunt put saccharin in everything. Everything. Uh, yeah. Right. I, I, and I remember my. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what we were told, right? And country yeah. rock, right? Yeah. You know, is is healthier than butter, right? And yep. there's all these all these different things, you know, that are just so so. Well, when we go back to visit, it's kind of a hard thing for us to do too. And a couple of years ago, my parents came out here to visit for a month. And, um, and I'm here in Park City, Utah, and uh, um, they were here for a month during the summer. And the first – they literally, like, drove out of the driveway. We jumped in the car to go eat sushi because we couldn't eat sushi for a month, right? It was, like, a whole different thing. Now, I married um, a New Yorker, so my palate spinach was expanded, you know, uh, you know, a lot just by being exposed to, you know, how she ate, how she, how she eats, how she yeah. cooks all those different things. But, you know, being in the restaurant world, that expanded me dramatically. I remember the first time, I literally remember where I was standing the first time I tasted pesto and the first time I tasted a Cajun cream sauce. Yeah. 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 There's so much earthiness. There's so much, and you can enjoy, and this is what we try to cover up most of the time, the bitterness of it. That's why salad dressings have sugar in it. And I even worked at a restaurant that the blue cheese salad dressing had sugar in it. And because, yes, because so here's a, imagine that your keto, you come in, oh, I'm going to have blue cheese dressing. I can have dairy, I can have cheese and have all those things. 
and that recipe has four cups of sugar in it. Oh. Now, Grant, you're only getting you're getting a, you're getting like three three teaspoons of it, but you ask for oh. extra because you can eat extra fat. You're taking yourself right out of ketosis, and you wake up in the morning like, "What's wrong?" Well, I don't know. Or you fell asleep on the way home, felt like you had to drink 47 cups of coffee to stay awake because your body's crashing because you're getting sugar because you didn't know what was in the recipe, you know, of that restaurant. And that chef wanted to to change the way that you know you tasted that that because most people aren't. Um, they don't understand that bitterness is actually how we feed our gut microbiome. Yeah. Like, or how much balsamic vinegar can you put on Brussels sprouts to cover up the taste? I mean, so again, you're putting some form of sugar on there to cover up the, the taste. It's just so amazing um, what we've done. And again, the Southern, the Southern diet is, you know, white bread and yeah. fat back and overcooked green beans and, um, <laughs> and, and, uh, so a red velvet cake, you know, the, oh, you know, the okay. list goes on and on. I love it. I love me some red velvet cake. I, yeah. <laughs> I remember one time I was visiting here and just um, and a friend met me at the airport and actually some family and, and they all went to go barbecue, which is funny because, I mean, I hate barbecue. It's like, I guess I was not consulted, but we go to this barbecue place in Birmingham and on the table is an entire loaf of Wonder White Bread. Like, that's what you get served as a table of six or more. You get a, an entire loaf. And I just look at them like, what's that doing on the table? And they're all laughing. And they're like, well, you know, you use that for, you know, dip, dip into barbecue. And I'm like, but aren't you guys ordering something? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, was, I was floored. I just. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was talking to my daughter the other day. She, she's born in Utah, and, you know, and, and, you know, I think she, she lives in a, a pretty mixed household, you know, a New Yorker mother and a and a Southern, um, you know, dad, where the one, one night there's like, you know, New York Italian, you know, pizza made from scratch. And then the next night there's like some sort of barbecue going on. Right. So it's like back and forth, back and forth. And she asked me, she said, dad, what do you miss about being on keto? And I'm, I go, I miss Nanu's, my, my grandmother's biscuits. There's nothing mm. like that biscuit sliced in half, put in the oven with, with a shed spread country crock and, <laughs> strawberry jam right it was like yeah it was like that was my middle school breakfast for three you know three years and uh um there's nothing like it you know but and i just saw uh on pinterest i saw a recipe for keto biscuits and i'm like we got to make this so i can maybe like get close to scratching that that itch but you know my my wife is an amazing cook my daughter actually has an instagram channel that has like almost five thousand followers it's kids crazy crazy for healthy cooking and um they make me you know for birthdays and stuff they make me like a uh, keto cheesecake and they've also made um like a keto red velvet cake it comes out gray doesn't come out red but okay. um you, <laughs> no. you can kind of get to that because using a natural beet food coloring it kind of changes as you as you bake it and that type of stuff but it's really kind of an interesting um piece trying to get back to those foods that we grew up eating um, that I, I don't really do that that often because when I started keto four years ago, you couldn't buy anything that had keto in the grocery store. There was no keto cake mix. There was no, um, there, there was, you know, no keto peanut butter cups. So I was making all of these things on my own with the ingredients I bought in the, in the store. So it's really kind of a, a interesting piece as you get back to, you know, understanding food and, how we're programmed to eat a certain way. And then that 
creates this generational chronic disease is because we're eating a certain way, we're handling stress a certain way. Like you said, we're not changing a certain way, those types yeah. of things. Those are the things that are really passed down from generation to generation, so you really have to change. So, well, I asked my last question about 20 minutes ago. And <laughs> I know, and I have um, to go so, now. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation, and uh, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Um, and the last place I traveled before this whole thing started with with uh, COVID uh, was I spoke at a conference in Park City, of all places. No way. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah, February 28th, I think it was. I mean, it was yeah. right before. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, um, well, if you ever come back to Park City or if I ever – I always refer to I've been to two foreign countries, and one of them is Alabama. So if I ever get back to uh, – <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 where did I go? Tal- I've been to Talladega a couple times. Um, okay, okay. Yeah. Never, never to the to the official NASCAR track. I used to race go karts, and we would race at the. There's a motorcycle track about eight miles away, so um, I've been to Alabama to race go karts, uh, in three times in my in my life, and I. Like I said, I've been to two foreign countries, and one of them is Alabama. So <laughs> if we get down there, we'll have to we'll have to meet up, right? That sounds great. That sounds yeah. awesome. Thank so, you. This was fun. You. Yes. Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Take care. <laughs> The statements expressed in this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Thank you for listening to the Modern Longevitarian. Please show your support by giving us a kind review and subscribing. You can also learn so much more about increasing the quality of your life today and the quantity of your life tomorrow at our website, modernlongevitarian.com. You can also join our private Facebook group at the link in the show notes. Come back next week for another amazing episode of the Modern Longevitarian.